Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us this day, this wonderful, peaceful, magnificent day in your grace. We thank you for your love and that peace that you have imparted to us through your Spirit, the same Spirit that your Son promised would seal we believers into union with Him, the same Spirit that authored the Bible, the same Spirit that assures us of our relationship with your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the same Spirit that has convicted us of both good and evil, and the same Spirit that bears fruit in and through us to your glory. All glory and honor are yours alone, dear God. We pray that our hearts never depart from or reject or usurp such a truth, rather that they embrace it wholly. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation of the series, The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 12 now. Let's begin with some encouraging scripture. Being grateful for all the truth that emanates from this pulpit to God's glory. Go to 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4.1. And it's funny, I've been doing uh, a lot of, you know, research in the scriptures about what encouragement even is and how the saved person, how the truly... Uh, honest person, the one that's seeking for truth, that person reads every bit of the Bible and is edified, reads every bit of the Bible and is encouraged. Remember, the Bible says, look, when you're a believer walking in the Spirit, then His commands are not burdensome. That's the Scripture. His commands are not burdensome. And that's something to think about because uh, there's an awful lot of commands in the Bible. And so you have to think, what has the Spirit been saying to you personally on this? So uh, the reason I bring that up is because look at how 1 John 4 starts. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Remember in context, Jesus, or excuse me, John was combating the Gnostics and what have you. They said that... Um, Part of their doctrines were that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh, etc., etc. But we can still learn. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We, the apostles in view primarily, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Just a little more context. Remember, that's what the, the, false, the false teachers would have done. They would have spent some of their time discrediting the very message of the apostles, of those that taught truth. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That is the great litmus test, by the way, and that's what I've, uh, and I'm just finishing up uh, with a very long study called the New Testament. And I've looked at every verse, pretty much, verse by verse. Um, and the great overarching theme, I know I've taught you this many, many times in the past, but I've never been so sure of it in my life. The great overarching theme is actually in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's the great litmus test, folks. People ask me all the time, you know, well, I'm getting a little insecure. The teaching's making me a little insecure. I don't feel like I'm bearing the right fruit. I'm starting to wonder, blah, blah, blah. And that's normal. But if you don't love, you have the great litmus test to face in your own situation. Love is really the end-all, be-all of all of this. And I always think of ultimate sanctification, which theologically means, what's it going to be like in heaven? Well, we're going to be completely enveloped in unfettered love. That's going to be what it is for all of eternity. And so you have to think about if that's what it's going to be when we're completely sanctified, what is he trying to do in our sanctification now? He wants you to abide in that love or realize that love now. He wants you to walk by the Spirit. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit, which the very first fruit of in Galatians 5.22 is what? Love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to to be the propitiation for our sins. That's just a fancy word that means God was satisfied, His judgment specifically. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. That's a very important point, and it really echoes what I started off with uh, relative to the reading of the entire and the study of the entire New Testament. I'll give you MacArthur on this. I like the way he spells it out here. Love originated in God, was manifested in His Son, and demonstrated in His people. And really what he's saying is that no one's seen God. John just said that. But yet, for a time, people saw the manifestation of love. Love hung on a cross, ultimately. But then that love in His incarnation is now seated at the right hand of God. So we don't see Jesus. If anyone says they see Jesus, you might... Just saying. 
We don't see Jesus. We don't see, we don't have the manifestation. So what's the manifestation of God's love then? All of you. How does God reveal His love to the world? All of you. That's His expression to the world. It's through us. It's demonstrated by His people. As the Spirit's taught us many times in the past, true love, true love, emphasis on true, there's a lot of unbelievers out there that would probably want to fight me tooth and nail uh, if I said they weren't, quote-unquote, in love with their unbeliever spouse or something like that. But spiritually appraised things cannot be understood by the unregenerate. So they wouldn't understand the kind of love that I'm talking about here this morning. They don't understand the expression of God's love supernaturally through His people. And that's okay. So as the Spirit's taught us many times in the past, true love cannot help but express itself. So concentrate here. I don't know about you, but I've often asked myself the following question. What is the difference between God's love and man's love? What's the difference? Now that I'm on the righteous side of things, I'm spiritually equipped to be able to discern such a thing. I'm curious, what does the Bible say? What's the difference between God's love and man's love? And here's what I've gleaned from Scripture, not exclusively, but it's a good stick-in-the-mud starting point for all of you. God's love versus man's The unregenerate man is inherently selfish. Romans 8, 7. The regenerate man, abiding in God's love, expresses his love towards others in myriad spirit-guided ways. 1 John 4 as a whole. Again, God's love versus man's. The The unregenerate man is inherently selfish. Romans 8, 7, the regenerate man abiding in God's love expresses his love towards others in myriad spirit-guided ways. And It doesn't take long once you realize what true love is. Once you're on the other side, once you understand the selflessness of godly love, it's not hard to look back at man especially the unregenerate who cannot love like God because they don't abide in His love. It's not hard to actually identify. I wouldn't suggest you do it in front of them. You might, be in a, you might have a little scrap to deal with after that. But it's not hard to identify selfish love at all. It's manipulative. It's why there's so many divorces in the world. And I don't mean to upset anybody that's been divorced, but that's one of the reasons I'm convinced of it. As soon as the other person begins failing, what happens? I'm gone. This is about me. This is my selfish love. For as long as you were doing good by me, I'm good. But (laughs) this is over with. So that's just a symptom or bad fruit of selfish love. So the unregenerate man is inherently selfish. Go to Romans 8, 7 as an example And like I've said, the overarching theme as I've studied the entire New Testament in the last month or so 
as a whole is this concept, of course, I'm not surprised by it, nor should any of you be at this juncture, is the concept of love. Romans 8, 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, love, if you would, for it is not even able to do so. I didn't say that. Scripture said that. That means the unregenerate person is unable to love the way you are, is incapable of abiding in God's love, which is a selfless love. Which means that if God's got the market cornered on selfless love, what's left? Selfish love. Again, up here on the board, the unregenerate man is inherently selfish. The regenerate man abiding in God's love expresses his love towards others in myriad spirit-guided ways. Okay, go back to 1 John 4.12. I should have told you to hold your thumb. It was in my notes, but I skipped over it. Oh, well. Love me. First John 4.12 No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, and that's a reference to godly love, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. I really like the way McDonald puts it as well. Up here on the board. We are never intended... Now think about what I gave you on selfish versus selfless love. We are never intended to be terminals of God's blessings, but channels only. I've taught you that is, you know, the pipeline of grace, the grace pipeline. Things go through us. When we try to cling to it, that's a selfish thing. That's not the manifestation of God. That's a selfish lover that's trying to say, you know, God loves me, more than you. I get to hold on to God's love more than you because I'm insecure or whatever. We are never intended to be terminals of God's blessings, but channels only. God's love is given to us, not that we might hoard it for ourselves, but that it might be poured out to us through others. We're not terminals. We're channels. If you, can sit, if you really sit back and look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm kind of a terminal. Terminal means it stops with me. I'm the end point. God pours all the love out on me, and that's great for me. Don't you wish you had what I had? La, 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 la. I have all his love. Well, you just proved yourself a selfish lover because true love cannot help but express itself, which means that true love, if you're abiding in true love, you're a channel. You're not hoarding it, if that makes sense. I always get a kick out of there are certain types of individuals in the world that they'll never say it, but they sort of insinuate that somehow they have more of God's love than I do or than you do. And they use all kinds of mangled scripture to sort of 
be a terminal of that love, which is a very interesting little thing that I've learned with people. Love is dynamic. It's dynamic. It's an economy. I even taught you using that language, God's economy versus Satan's economy. Satan's economy says pile up everything, stockpile everything for yourself so that at the end of the day when everything's measured, you win. God says just the opposite. I'm going to overflow my love into your life and your, love is, your cup is going to be so filled that you're going to overflow into other people's lives. That's very different. Those are two completely different things. Love is dynamic. It moves. The economy is that it flows through one, goes right to the next. It's a working economy. It's a beautiful thing. But if everybody says, I'm going to stockpile everything I've got in a bank somewhere, how did you actually do business with the grace that God gave you? Think of the miners, the parable of the miners. No, you're the person who stuck it in the mason jar in the backyard, hoping to get interest, maybe. Or you should have at least gotten interest. I hope you follow what the Spirit's been saying here. We are channels, not terminals, of God's blessings, and love is at the forefront. Love is dynamic. But it stops being dynamic, in other words, if you begin hoarding it for yourselves. Paul alludes to this in his letter to Philemon. Go to Philemon 7. Philemon 7, right after Titus, right before Hebrews, I believe. Philemon 7, so you have to think about that in your own life. How is love dynamic in your own life? In other words, do you even come to class like this morning just so you can hear how much God loves you and stockpile more for yourself? Or is this about your very presence here is about living for others even that it's part of the nature of who you are well, those are questions for you to ask yourselves is it selfish is everything about you seriously i would argue that that's the majority of people probably hearing my voice right now that everything's about you it doesn't take very long to see it i get to i get a really nice vantage point from the pulpit and from my leadership position in the church Um, people are, in general, in their flesh, selfish lovers. And they do it, it spills over into the spiritual life. Philemon 7, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through, and the original says by reason of or on account of, through you, brother. What's he saying? He's, he says, listen, I've, I'm, I find great joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. In other words, Philemon was sharing the love. He was abiding in true love, which can't help but what? Express itself. And Paul said, that's wonderful. That means you're matured in this thing. I see your fruit. In your fruit, you're sharing it with everyone. And that's how I know that the dynamic, godly love is alive and powerful 
in your presence, in your midst, in your circle of friends or family or church even. And Paul found great comfort in that. If you read any of the books in the Bible, especially the New Testament, you'll find this very common thread that true love cannot help but express itself. As MacArthur said, even love originated in God was manifested in His Son and demonstrated in His people. Go to 2 Corinthians 1.3. 2 Corinthians 1.3. Again, the great litmus test of all is love. Where are you relative to love? 2 Corinthians 1.3 That's why you can never judge yourself compared to another person. It's really about love. There may be this kind of fruit or that kind of fruit, but it's really love that matters the most in the end. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see a, a, a dynamic love there? Do you see a dynamic sharing there? Of course. God says, I'm going to comfort you. I want you to comfort each other, etc., etc. It's not, I'm going to comfort you, and that's it. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, that's that Greek word, perisuo, it means to overflow. Back in the day, I actually drew a cup, if you remember, that was filled up with grace, and it got filled up to the brim and overflowed into other cups, and then they overflowed, right? Most of it, is it like a, is it like a fondue fountain? Is that what that is? Those little fountains that overflow? It's like that. That's what perisuo means. It means the cup is filled up and it overflows. The grace, the love, the comfort, the suffering, all of it is overflowing into the lives of others. That's not selfish at all. That's selfless. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant, same word, through Christ. Again, that's the dynamism the dynamicness or the dynamic nature of God and His love. Again, up here on the board, McDonald says it this way, we are never intended to be terminals of God's blessings, but channels only. God's love is given to us, not that we might hoard it for ourselves, but that it might be poured out to us through others. Okay, go back to 1 John 4.12. 1 John 4.12. I did it again, huh? Hmm. Maybe it's a test. Who knows? 1 John 4.12 No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, reference to godly, unselfish love, this is our litmus test. If we love one another, God abides in us. This is how we can tell, in other words. If you don't love the brethren, John says in myriad ways, right? If you see someone in need and you don't love them, how can the God of love abide in you? This kind of a thing. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. The next verse helps those of you out there who might be struggling 
with your own salvation, not necessarily with your status, although that could be a situation, but rather with the objective tests in Scripture. Let me say this, that if you're earnestly seeking truth and a relationship with Christ, and your heart esteems learning the Word of God above all other things in your life, well, I'd be willing to bet that the Spirit will convict you of such a thing in a good way. He will convict you of a good thing. But really, you desire nothing more in this life than to know more and more your Lord and Savior. Which is why I'm hoping all of you are here this morning. So, you know, the, the conviction, everybody, everybody hears that word conviction and it's got a negative connotation, probably because we're horrible sinners. So it's like, yes, I'm convicted of this sin, I'm convicted. But the spirit is a spirit of integrity, which means that if you're also in the right, he will convict you of that as well, with proportional magnitude. He's not going to hold back and say, you know, you're so arrogant, I just can't tell you because your head will get a big no. He'll convict you of both things. 1 John 4.13 then. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. By this we know. So that's that question that some people have even asked me. Well, you know, I'm getting a little insecure. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. Well, that's an issue between you and the Spirit if He truly does indwell you. So by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Godly fruit, specifically love, is a supernatural gift which fundamentally means that it takes a supernatural conviction from the supernatural spirit to appraise such fruit. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.14. Again, godly fruit, specifically love, is a supernatural gift, which fundamentally means that it takes a supernatural conviction from the supernatural spirit to appraise such fruit. So don't ask your pastor if you have love. I see what I see, and I have to discern certain things and make certain judgments to keep the church protected and, and functional and all those kinds of things. Sometimes I'm wrong, but I would argue most of the time I'm right. But at the end of the day, just like the blog said, these things are between you and the God, the holy, almighty God of the universe. He's the one who's going to be able to convict you, not Pastor Ed. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That means supernaturally understood and evaluated and appraised. But he who is spiritual 
In other words, has the Spirit in him, implying a saved person, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And that echoes what we just read. Look at, you still in 1 John 4, 13? <laughs> Go back to 1 John 4, 13. Thought by now you would have gotten the hint. So as you're in 1 John 4, 13, let me read 1 Corinthians 2, 15 again. It says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So how do you appraise then that you're saved? Well, the word of God says, if we have his love, then we abide in him, then we are saved. Who's going to convict you that you have his love? Not me. The Spirit. That's His job. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first one listed is love, peace, patience, etc. So if you want to know if you have those things, then it must be the Spirit that's going to reveal that to you. I can't, as a human being, tell you if you have the love of God abiding in you. That would mean I'd be able to judge your very salvation. And I don't have that ability. I can only teach what the Scripture says. And if the Scripture's a little bit offensive to you, I'm not even going to apologize for it. I'm going to say that's your problem with God, your personal issue with God. But at the end of the day, I know what the Scripture says, and the Scripture says, if you have the Spirit, He will convict you that you're saved. He will assure you that you are saved. You will bear fruit that you can objectively evaluate, spiritually appraise even, because you're saved. That's what I can tell you from Scripture, and I can't tell you really much more. So, in other words, we gain our sense of confidence in our own salvation by means of the Spirit Himself. Again, we gain our sense of confidence in our own salvation by means of the Spirit Himself. And we might call that, and I use the word abiding on purpose because John uses it for the saved individuals all throughout his first epistle. Those that abide are the, those that are saved. Abiding confidence, then, if you're in the sphere. Abiding confidence. A saved person will abide in him, and the Holy Spirit in him will convict him of this reality if it truly exists. 1 John 3.24 With the proof of such a reality, as opposed to a mere proclamation, being that a believer will produce that which is intrinsic to the Holy Spirit, fruit, Galatians 5, to 23, and the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. I know that's a mouthful, but that's where your confidence comes from. And this is what Scripture reveals to us. A saved person will abide in Him, which means you are spiritual, 
which means God the Holy Spirit's ministry is alive and active in your soul, and he uses the word of God, Hebrews 4, uh, 12, which is alive and powerful, to convict you if, you, if you're actually saved, in other words, if you truly abide in him, 1 John 3, 24, with the proof of such a reality as opposed to a mere proclamation. There's a lot of people who say they're saved that aren't, who say they understand love, but they don't. It's impossible. Spiritually praised, impossible for the unregenerate man. We just read it. Again, with the proof of such a reality being that a believer will produce that which is intrinsic to the Holy Spirit. A good listing is Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit. And the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. John spends a good portion of his first epistle on the idea of making that distinction. If you don't have God's love, then you cannot be saved. I didn't say that. That's the Word of God that says that. But oh, so-and-so, I don't care about so-and-so. I'm tired of people telling me how they feel. And then they say, this is how I feel, so I'm going to go out and look for Scripture in a vacuum that supports how I feel. All I can tell you on that approach is, first, in humility, been there, done that. Second, you're setting yourself up for a big fall later on. Because, my friend, you have an agenda. You have a personal agenda. You could almost say it was a vendetta against truth. Because you don't personally like what might be, say, coming from the pulpit. So you make it your life's work at this point in time to go vet out Scripture that supports your so-called theory about God's love in abiding as a believer in God or in Christ. That's a very slippery slope, my friends. Again, this principle is for those of you who are looking for objective evidence of your own salvation, not necessarily because you believe you are unsaved, but rather to quell some of the doubts that seem to haunt you here and there. We call this our sense of assurance, which is something that surely increases as a person matures. That's why, like First uh, Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith. You're supposed to, I like to say, spend your doctrine. You're supposed to apply your doctrines, if you would. To what? To life so that you can actually see the strength and the power of the Word of God in you. So that what happens after that, as Paul would say, as you persevere, your hope goes up, your confidence goes up, your faith is increased. But the idea is that part of the maturation process, the result, part of that fruit, is your sense of confidence, your sense of assurance. Since we're right around the corner, let's see another verse that drives the point on the board home. Go to 1 John 3.24. 1 John 3.24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he 
in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Basically the same proposition, isn't it? How do we know? By the Spirit. These are supernatural artifacts of your salvation, if you would. These things are alive and powerful and used to convict us in our spiritual walks. To prove to us on a daily basis that we should rest assured in our salvation. That we should be confident in our salvation. So whenever we do see supernatural fruit like that listed in Galatians 5, 22-23, for example, that's a sense of assurance. Because you know that you didn't have that same fruit before you were saved. Only after. You may say, but before I was saved, I did love. Yeah, but it was a different kind of love. Love has taken on a whole new dimension as a saved individual. Again, the point on the board, abiding confidence. A saved person will abide in him with the proof of such a reality being that a believer will produce that which is intrinsic to the Holy Spirit, and the greatest of these is love. With that bit of encouragement before us now, let's review how we began our last couple of lessons with the same balance statement, by the way, front and center. Faith fruit will produce or will be produced by every believer, guaranteed. However, only God knows if a person is saved or not. A healthy suspicion based on a lifestyle of bad fruit may serve as motivation, but never a just cause for passing judgment. Romans 14.4 in the Amplified, Who are you to judge the servant of another before his own master? He stands approved or falls out of favor, and he who serves the master, the Lord, will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The principle is it's not us not up to us to judge we're not judges of other people we can judge certain things but when it comes to salvation specifically we certain most certainly are not the judge on the matter we then look to a couple of parables by jesus beginning with the wheat and the tares in matthew 13 24 to 30 and 36 to 43 i'll give you the highlight reel up here on the board matthew 13 30 Remember the wheat and the tares grew up together? The tares being a weed that represented, was representative of unbelievers. The Lord, in His parable, says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. That's the unbelievers. But gather the wheat into my barn. So the lesson we glean from that relative to our studies Allow both to grow together. It's not a believer's job to discern who is saved and who isn't. We can certainly, quote, see their fruit, possibly be motivated if we suspect the false gospel, but only God knows who the tares are among us. So on Thursday, the Spirit turned our attention then, after all that good work, to the concept of patience, specifically, Patience, probably because patience is the great sort of um, collector or it keeps us corralled a certain way. Impatience does some crazy things, amen? Yeah. So he really turned our attention to a practical thing called patience. 
as a general principle first, but also pertaining to our studies as of late regarding the presentation of the gospel, I'll give you this. Relative to salvation, salvation for many people is a drawn-out process, speaking from the manward side. To God, it's really not. He already knows who's saved. He's already elected the saved. So I'm not talking about God's side, because God's not bound by the construct of time. So we're immediately drawn to you know, the nature of the way we think. Salvation for many people is a drawn-out process, speaking from the manward side. While the judicial act of justification is a moment in time, man has a habit of exploiting God's patience in counting the cost of salvation, which really is denying self and following Christ. That decision, a lot of people have to go through the, the rigmarole of failing miserably and exhausting themselves miserably in the self-life before they realize and come to the conclusion that they're no good by themselves. And at that juncture, now the soil has been sort of softened and made ready for salvation. So we believers must be patient while others work through the most important decision in their lives. Here's some wonderfully placed encouragement. You're not alone, so don't be discouraged. Always remember that God uses a multitude of evangelists in this world, often on a single individual. Consider that even Jesus couldn't evangelize his own family immediately, nor his town. John 7, 5, Acts 1, 14, Mark 6, 1 to 4. John 7, 5 up here on the board, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Think about that. And two of Jude and James wrote epistles. Think about that. His own brothers in the beginning didn't believe in him. So you should be encouraged at least. If they didn't believe Jesus, come on. Mark 6, 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. So that sort of wraps up that point of encouragement. Most of you will attest that the hardest folks to evangelize are often those closest to us. But yeah, it's the ones we want to evangelize the most, isn't it? It's like, man, will you... But because of who you are, it is just a, too big of a stumbling block. That took us to this idea, which I need you to concentrate on because it's a big idea. Human rationalism. Really, the Spirit's been picking a bone on this. He's had me write about it. He's had me teach about it. Something's going on in this congregation relative to this thing called human rationalism. I alluded to it a little bit earlier when I was talking about the person who tries to prove their feelings through Scripture. That's the same attitude. It's the same person who tends to use human rationalism. They tend to be a little bit more on the intellectual side, which precludes every one of you, so I must be talking to... Everybody says, whoa, that's the line, mister... I'm just kidding. But it's funny because there is a, there's definitely a correlation between 
IQ and human rationalism. Definitely a correlation. It's one of, well, I forget it. Human rationalism. Unbelievers take offense at supernatural phenomena because they cannot rationalize it. So this is the funniest thing, right? Unbelievers take offense at the idea that there's even a God because they can't rationalize it. They're offended by supernatural phenomena because their science or their logic or their rationalism can't, can't reconcile it. It's outside of the boundaries of their control. Believers, though, are encouraged by the fact that they cannot rationalize it. They say, that makes zero sense. But I know it to be true. And the Holy Spirit, as we just read, will convict me of that reality. And that just encourages me. That there are many, many things outside of the realm of human rationalism that cannot be explained by even the so-called brightest scientists on the planet. And I love that. I don't know about you. I love it. And part of me, like this kind of like, is like, good, you little whack job. You, you're so intelligent that you're proving yourself an idiot. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it's, it's, like a, it's like an indictment on the flesh. How far and how hard the flesh will hold on to something other than God just because it doesn't want God. It's amazing. Anybody in here, can anybody up here, if I said, all right, end of, end of class right now, somebody come up here and teach me string theory. No. <laughs> Certainly isn't going to be DJ. No. He's like, I got a string in my pocket. Does that count? <laughs> Goes from here to there, but I'm thinking it's something different. The funny thing is, I could sit in front of a bunch of unbelievers right now, people that vehemently say, this is a bunch of garbage, and I could say, same thing. Here's a piece of chalk. Teach me about string theory. I won't what? Well, then what do you have faith in then? What is it do you have faith? You can't even, you don't even know the first thing about that so-called system that you believe in. So what do you have faith in then? Seriously. Just anything but God, right? Let's just get it out in the open. It's anything but God. Right? Fair? And then they'll probably throw eggs at me and this kind of a thing. So concentrate on this for a moment. Unbelievers take offense at supernatural phenomena because they cannot rationalize it. Believers are encouraged by the fact that they cannot rationalize it. When I say rationalize, I mean with the human mind. If an unbeliever cannot rationalize something in their minds, they take offense with it because the only viable solution is God. And they've rejected Him as an option. However, to believers... Something that cannot be rationalized, proved, proves there must be a God. You see the difference? Just the difference of perspective. The truth is silliness to unbelievers, but the power of salvation to believers. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.25. 1 Corinthians 1.25. The problem is that it's not just exclusive to unbelievers. Believers do this problem, this, this, do this thing all the time. They get into human rationalism. They get themselves and possibly even others who they share their ridiculousness with. 
into a tangle and into, and they sow doubts and fears and insecurities and all these kinds of things because they're just trying to prove an agenda. 1 Corinthians 1.25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who because to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, that was to amplify the point on the board. Unbelievers take offense at supernatural phenomena because they cannot rationalize it, However, believers are encouraged by that fact that they cannot rationalize it. And thanks be to God that He is patient. Thanks be to God that He's patient while all these human rationalists run around trying to disprove His existence, trying to prove that they're right. Some of them even use the Bible. But thanks be to God that He is a patient God. For as we know... And someone, I think of someone like uh, Lee Strobel. Anybody ever read him? The Case for Christ, Case for Faith, etc. He did the series. He was an unbeliever. He was a vehement. He was trying to disprove the Bible, and he ended up being a writer as a believer. He was converted. So my opinion is, go, go for it. Like even people, I say, you know what? I was thinking about that riding in. You know, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, someone with an agenda that goes to the Bible to prove their agenda, I say go for it. I say, I'm not going to sit and argue with you. As long as you keep reading the Bible, that truth has a better chance than the stumbling block that is me in disproving your ridiculous theories about God. So I say go for it. Go ahead. Go for it. Been there, done that. You aren't going to listen to me. You go for it then. Go read your Bible. Go try to disprove these things. Try to prove this thing with your agenda. Eventually, he's going to have his way with you. And you're going to be mad because you wasted all that time. But it really wasn't a waste of time, if that makes sense. You understand what I'm saying? Anyways. Some unbelievers will accept. The beauty is, because of God's patience, some unbelievers will accept before their deaths that God truly exists and Christ is their Lord and Savior. Second Peter 3.9, and he amplified, The Lord does not delay as though he were unable to act and is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is extraordinarily patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We can't even fathom the patience of God, can we? I mean, just think of your own life. How ridiculous are you? No, really. And maybe for some of you, you weren't saved until later on. How ridiculous were you before you were saved? How many things did you do that were basically spitting on him? Think about that. And how extraordinarily patient was he with you 
And that's only one person in the universe. Think about that. Think about all the people who have lived. For those of us saddled with the Great Commission, believers in other words, and saddled is not used negatively there. It's a privilege. Patience is a virtue. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. This is why the Spirit brought it up. Our job is to teach the gospel accurately, including the challenging aspects of it that suggest a person count the cost of discipleship. We don't want to, this is what he's been saying, we're not going to give them a cheap gospel or some convenient gospel. We want to tell them up front, you, you need to understand depravity. I was talking about, this was my mom and DJ before class. Um, there's this thing out there that has happened that says, you're saved equals heaven. You're saved equals heaven. What the heck does that even mean? No, seriously. If you present the gospel as, you're saved, therefore you get to go to heaven. You've missed the point. Saved from what? First of all, what is it that you're saved from? They don't even, they don't even finish the sentence. Saved equals heaven? Saved from what? Half the people that think they're saved have never even understood or addressed the fact that they're depraved. If you don't think you're depraved, then you don't think you need a Savior. You certainly don't want a Lord. So saved is not heaven. And I think most people have done this sort of, let's just water this whole thing down, saved equals heaven. I'm saved, I get to go to heaven. I'm saved. Saved from what? I have no idea. Someone said I'm saved, and saved means I go to heaven. I didn't have to do it. I didn't have to even consider anything. I didn't have to count any costs. I still live in my sin. But I got this checkbox that says I'm saved, so I go to heaven. That's not salvation at all. That is not salvation at all. Saved from what? Oh, now we got to contemplate. Contemplate what? That I'm depraved at birth. I have to count a cost, I have to make a decision. And it's a heart decision, not a, okay, tell me I fill in this checkbox, I go to heaven, heaven equals, or excuse me, saved equals heaven. Sounds good to me. All right, we done here? I'm going to go back to my, go back to the slave market of sin, you know. There's an abundance of scripture that speaks to the point on the board. Go to 2 Timothy 4.1. 2 Timothy 4.1. See, what I'm teaching you is not popular by any means, at all, and most, I wouldn't say most, but there's far too many churches even that have compromised the gospel so that it doesn't go underwater, so that they can financially meet their bills or something like that, or fill seats, which is a complete distrust in the grace of God, by the way. You don't solve a godly issue with a human rationalism. Did I say that clearly enough? If you're a member of a church and the church is going under, you don't try to solve it with human rationalism by saying, maybe we should, maybe we should change to what we're teaching here. Maybe we need to water down the gospel to get all the kids in. 
Well, that has zero faith in God. That's a human solution to a godly problem. If the soil is completely rocky and dried up in your neighborhood and your church goes poof, then guess what? That's what was meant to happen for as long as you were teaching truth. I'm not talking about the people who stop teaching truth and God annihilates it for other, other reasons. 2 Timothy 4.1. So when you teach the truth, it's not popular, but what the Word of God says is that those that seek will find. So if you teach the truth, then people like you show up. Because you're looking for that one gem, the pearl in your life, which is truth. So you all show up. And the day... If I hope that never happens, but if you ever stop showing up, but I'm convinced that I'm still teaching the truth, I'd say, freedom at last! I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to do the Martin Luther King Jr. thing. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God! I'm just kidding. <laughs> I joke, all right? Don't you love us? Second Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means when it's popular, when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. How? With great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Up here on the board, I hate to be so sort of colloquial or, you know, no disrespect to God using God as a big fan, but God is a big fan of patience, hence the very fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, peace, patience. Arguably the greatest challenge to our patience is in evangelism. I mean, let's face it, where is, that, where is the idea of patience put to the test more than as a believer who knows the most important thing ever, ever, is the gospel, reality, and the ones that you love the most aren't listening. Is there a greater test of patience? Right? It's, it, it, is there a greater opportunity that you want to shake? I mean, you, who cares if they hate you for the rest of your life? I'd rather be hated by someone I love tremendously for the rest of my life if I knew that the seed that I planted took root and they were saved. I'd rather be alienated from everyone I love if I knew that they all believed. Does that make sense? And, and that's why it's so hard sometimes to sit back in patience and say, Ooh! but that's a test. And during that, quote, waiting period, we ought never judge why. Only God can see a person's heart. The Bible clearly teaches that patience is a show of power, which was another point he brought up on Thursday, that patience is a show of power. Lack of patience is a failure many times. 
Patience is a show of power. Lack of impatience is a weakness. And power is what make cha- makes changes in others. Go to Proverbs 25.15. Proverbs 25.15. So the Bible does teach us that patience is power, and power is what makes changes in people. The power to change, so to speak. Proverbs 25.15. For, or by forbearance, forbearance is another word for patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Concentrate up here on the board. What the Spirit's getting at is that patience is power. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. Rather, it is shown through virtues such as patience. It takes more power to exercise patience than force one's hand. The long-lasting effects are also greater. So in any form of ministry, we all have our own ministries, remember. I happen to have a pulpit uh, as well. But there is a likeness between our ministries that it's not always easy to sit back and watch people fail. Nowhere worse than with the gospel, but just in general. Just watch people not do the thing that's best for them, that you know is best for them because you've been there, done that. But yet you have to watch them go through the motions. It's difficult sometimes, isn't it? You know, when, you have, when your unbeliever friend comes up to you and for the 150th time this week says how miserable they are and how, you know, how their wife is a wench and their, or their husband is a whatever. What's the opposite of wench? I don't know. Wench? I don't know. Whatever. That you feel like shaking them and say, I told you, if you want deliverance from that agony you're in, the solution is Christ. So you wait patiently. But if you beat them over the head and shake them like you want to, all you've really done is put a stumbling block in the way. So you can't do that. Patience may mean that our job in evangelizing may span long periods of time. As Jesus might say, it may take a while before a person's soil is ready to receive the gospel seed and finally take full root. If you rush out misrepresenting the gospel with a just believe this and be saved and go to heaven thing, then you haven't considered the soil you are sowing seed on. And that's a laziness in the evangelist even. So if that person sprouts up quickly and realizes they are bearing zero fruit, they'll turn back to your gospel, your little g gospel, and say, this is a farce. And since you supposedly represent the veracity of Christ, 
they may even turn their backs on Christ. All because you wanted to play a part in their reconciliation. You chose to water down the gospel. You didn't want to take the time or the effort to look at the soil you might be dealing with. Not only are they now confused and frustrated, but they are disenchanted. Go to Matthew 13.3. Matthew 13.3. The parable of all parables. This is the granddaddy of them. You know, when you go fishing, what was that? Not the great outdoors. What was the one the guy kept trying? Oh, the, yeah, he kept fishing for that big old fish. Remember that? This is the one. Dun, dun. There was a name for it. What was it? Catfish hunter. That's what it was. You get a lollipop. Remember? And then he got it and he let it go. Anyways, I'm digressing. But this is the parable. If you're going to understand any parable... This is the one. If you don't understand this one, the others don't even make sense. Which is why you've got to get it right. And I would argue a lot of people don't have it right. So let's walk through this. Matthew 13, 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the soil, the good soil, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Remember that. Uh, his proposition, why he started speaking in parables, was so that the believers could understand them, had spiritual hearing. Those who have ears, who have ears, let them hear. Verse 18, here he explains the parable to his disciples. Verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Any fruit yet? Okay. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed indeed bears fruit and brings forth some of hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So you basically have, based on what the Spirit's been telling us, you have three instances or three categories of individuals at various degrees have heard the gospel, even understood it, but have fallen away, or the seed itself was plucked out by the devil, which is represented by the birds. 
The only category then that bears fruit, which is an absolute, if you're not convinced of that yet, then I don't know where you've been in the series so far, but the Word of God is abundantly clear that a saved person will bear fruit. The only category is the last category. So the only category of believers in view is the last one. That points to the situation where a person may profess to be a Christian, may even act the part, may even get really excited, but they have no root system, therefore they never bear any fruit. That's the person that is what you would call the passing Christian, if you would, the one who goes to church even for a time, the one who's excited about the Lord, but then as soon as something difficult comes, poof. But yet the Word of God is plainly obvious that a person doesn't go poof when they are saved. They may sin, they may do a lot of things, but they will bear fruit. The point the Spirit's making here is simple. We need to understand that a person's soil then must be properly conditioned even to receive the gospel. That person that you're trying to evangelize, they may not have the right soil yet for the seed to truly take root. They may be on the rocky soil, if you would. Or they may be way too still concerned with the self-life, which is what happens to the person who gets choked out. So you have to talk to them about those issues before even the soil might be ready. Does that make sense? Yeah. And a lot of people just go, I don't care where I'm throwing this. I'm just throwing it anywhere. And I'm going to water down the gospel and say, just believe this little coin. Here, believe this coin and you're saved. Saved equals heaven. I'm not going to consider or concern myself with the fact that that person obviously has no desire whatsoever, none whatsoever of giving up or denying themselves. They just want the blessings or the byproducts, if you would, of being saved. That's what they really hear. You telling me I get to go to heaven if I just say I believe this thing? Yeah. You mean I get this thing for free? Yeah. Well, I want that. Well, don't stop there, my friend, because Jesus didn't. Give up yourself and follow me. Like the rich man. Nope. I just want more stuff. That's what I'm good at, collecting stuff. I'm a terminal. I don't want to be a conduit. I want to be a terminal. It's about me. He with the most stuff at the end wins. So for many people that profess to be believers, they were really just looking for more stuff. And therefore, they never bear fruit. So relative to this idea of patience and how we go and evangelize people, we have to understand that not all soils are the same. Not all soils are ripe to produce fruit, to be saved And that's something we have to consider. We can't just throw seed at... All right, okay, anybody got a grass seed? Okay, you ready? I'm going to throw it on the stage. Is it ever going to grow? Duh. Until a person realizes that they need a Lord, until a person realizes that they are totally depraved, 
until a person realizes that their so-called self-righteousness is garbage compared to the holy God. Until all that happens, their soil is maybe at best going to produce something immediately and then get burned up, scorched out, which means that their faith, since it never produced fruit, was spurious, was no good. That's why a lot of people, the Bible says, there are going to be some that come right up to Christ. Did I not do this, that, and the other? Did I not prophesy in your name? And what's he going to say? I never knew you. But I went to church. But I did this. But I did that. I said yes to the question on the coin. What else did it have to be? I wanted you. And once I have you, I don't lose you. And once I have you, you will bear fruit. And unfortunately, that's going to be the fate of many people who profess to be Christians. Let me just pick a spot then to close. For example, if a person has no intention of submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord, then their soil isn't ready yet. If a person has zero intention of submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. I wrote a blog on this. My Lord, not just my Savior. If a person's not willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, then their soil isn't ready yet. They may be told that they are saved, and in their early exuberance begin to function in a form of godliness, a form of Eusebiah, a form of the spiritual life. They may grow up as a tear, look just like wheat, but they never bear any fruit. They look just like the wheat. And then harvest time comes, and what happens to the tares? Burned up. So they may be told that they are saved, and in their early exuberance, begin to function in a form of godliness. And I'm borrowing from 2 Timothy 3.5. Even looking the part, however, eventually, when the true fruit of the Spirit can't be faked anymore, they realize they don't have it, and they fade away. That, my friends, is not saving faith. What did Jesus Christ say? Lost not one. That, my friends, is not saving faith. And that's what the parable is about. And the last thing we want to do is take part in such an ordeal. I'll just close with this. I've been told by a number of people that the issue is that we want so badly for those we love to be saved. Is that fair? I mean, come on. If we want so badly for the ones that we love to be saved. So we cushion the blow, let's say, of the gospel truth, especially the part about denying oneself because we know it'll be met with resistance. And here's what I'll leave you with. 
it's better to face off with resistance to the true gospel than without resistance to an accommodating, less, quote, offensive gospel, little g. This goes for children, too. There can be no watering down the gospel. Again, it's better to face off with resistance to the true gospel than without resistance to an accommodating, less offensive gospel. This goes for children, too. I don't know why we have that propensity, let's call it, to water it down for children. But that is part of the gospel reality, that before a child can understand what depravity even is, well, then we might call that under the age of accountability. But we don't get just to chuck them a little coin and say, yeah, you're saved. We'd be doing them a disservice, a grave one at that, possibly creating a stumbling block. So we don't get to water it down just because they're little kids. We don't get to do that either. And I think we have this tendency to do that. But when it comes to the gospel, we cannot do that, not even with children. Tell them the truth. Tell them the actual facts. And if they're too little to understand the truth about something like being depraved, needing a Lord, needing a Savior, then they're not ready yet. And if they die before that, God will hook them up anyways. But we cannot do a disservice even to children. So... It's better to face off with resistance to the true gospel than without resistance to an accommodating, less offensive gospel. This goes for children, too. There can be no watering down the gospel. Once again, I think we don't have enough time for a video. We'll get it next time. Monica keeps sending them. She's like, do you want me to keep sending them? I'm like, keep sending them. When I have time, I'll, I'll play it. Okay? But I see uh, most of your eyeballs are floating. So we're just going to close up. Amen? That's uh, bar heads. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you believe that you need a Savior and you repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now, that is Christ Himself, and be saved. If you've just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time to fellowship with you in this most important of ways, learning your word. Thank you for your spirit and his work through all the individual spiritual gifts, for it is truly evident in the good work that was accomplished here this morning. Thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to die in our stead so that we might live Thank you for reminding us of the gospel truth and all good things in this life flow from it. 
For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.